It was October 1st, 1975, and it was the third and final boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Frazier. It was known as the Thrilla in Manila because it was in the Philippines. It was for the heavyweight championship of the world, October 1, 1975. A few years before, the first fight was in 1971. They called it the fight of the century. And Frazier won that one. He, he uh, scored the, the fight and the trilogy's only knockdown at the beginning of the final round. And then in 1974, they had Super Fight 2. Ali won that one. So everything was building up for this epic battle in the Thrilla in Manila. And I grew up in that era of the Ali-Frazier fights, and they were epic battle fights. But they weren't just e epic battle fights. They were epic battle buildups to the fights. Lots of trash talking going on amongst them. One of the things Ali said about Frazier is, I'm going to beat him so bad he's going to need a shoehorn to put his hat on. So when the fight began, Smokin' Joe, as he was called, seemed like he was asleep. Until around the fifth round, he woke up, he started boxing, and then in the tenth round, Ali hit Frazier in the eye. His eye started swelling up, and they were just going at it round after round after round. And then the 14th round came, and they kept fighting. And then the end of the 14th round came, and at that moment in time, it was just a matter of who was going to outlast the other. Who was going to keep fighting? Who would not cave in? Who would not give up? Jude is urgently appealing to the church to not give up to stay in the fight, to not throw in the towel, to contend, to not cave in. Context is that in early church, in the first century, the church had been around some 35, 40 years at this point, and fault lines were showing in the church. Some cracks were, were showing, and the church needed to be protected. The church was under severe attack, externally from Rome and its politics, Internally, there was this aggressive infiltration uh, from people who advocated doctrinal error, but also sinful living. Doctrinal error and sinful living. Jude's the only New Testament book that exclusively confronts these errors. And Jude is warning beloved believers, contend for the faith. Don't give up. Don't abandon God's love. There were those who did not Love King Jesus. Their lifestyle showed it. Their teaching showed it. This is where the cracks were showing up. It's not so much in what you say, but in what you do. Ungodly living is always a moral issue, but it's also theological. God sees. False teachers are threatened with judgment, and they don't seem to fear it. There is no fear of God in their eyes. The primary issue being dealt with was immorality and rebellion. The theological term is apostate, those who have fallen away. But interestingly, many times they leave, they go away, but here it's a situation where they were insisting on staying, personally and corporately, but theologically and spiritually they had left and had followed false teaching and destructive living. Adrian Rogers put it this way, that there are 
they are the kind of people that received the truth, then rejected the truth, then ridiculed the truth, and eventually try to replace the truth. Snakes in the garden. You see this tragic progression, not just in the first century, but you see it all through the ages. Even now, you can see once strong institutions like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Columbia and Brown and the University of Chicago all were founded to train pastors to proclaim the gospel. And today, they're the furthest thing from that. Today, none stands for historic Christian orthodoxy. There are once great churches that no longer send missionaries because they've rejected the inerrancy of Scripture. They've rejected this, the claims of Christ. They ordain practicing homosexuals. They advocate same-sex marriage. They ignore abortion. Thomas Schreiner says moral degradation is the pathway to destruction. June 1, our 30th wedding anniversary, I opened up my calendar, and there it told me that it was day one of Pride Month getting pushed upon everyone. I'm like, how do I get that off my calendar? And many once solid Christians have caved in. At this moment, 25% of self-described born-again adults say that they are relying on something other than the gospel of the grace of God in Christ to get them to heaven. And many have latched on to an unbiblical form, an unbiblical brand of religiosity with no gospel, no substitutionary atonement, no heaven, no hell, no sin, no savior. This is why we must contend for the faith once for all delivered. I love Jude. What was on Jude's mind was God. God was on Jude's mind. He speaks of God the Father. He speaks of God our Savior. He, he speaks of a God who is very much involved with a Christian's life. A God very present in their salvation, very present in their preservation and their growth. That Christians are secure. This is what we're going to hear. Christians are secure. The king protects his people. And Judah's writing to people with some kind of, of Jewish background. He is referring not only to Old Testament scripture, he is also referring to extra-biblical literature that they would have known We'll get into that as we go through it, but first Enoch and the Testament of Moses. And Jude is not the type of letter where, hey, I'm going to sum up my theology, or I'm going to tell you, sketch out my view of the Christian life. He is trying to help the church respond to intruders who have invaded. And he wants them to counter these opponents that are opposing godly living and giving destructive teaching. He compares them to notorious Old Testament sinners. He says they're especially wicked. They're, they're mixing traditional beliefs with false teachings. They're, they're syncretistic. And we don't even know. Like in, in some Bible letters, you, you have the people called out by name. We don't even know who exactly they were, but they were there. And they were denying Christ's lordship by the way they lived. They were trying to exercise authority in the congregation. And so the idea today that we're going to see is that those called by Christ contend for Christ. The called contend for Christ. That it is a fight for the faith. It is a struggle to persevere, to pass on what has been delivered to us. That if you would contend for the faith once for all delivered, that if you would not cave in, that if you would not 
give up, you must know these truths that we see in these first four verses. You must know three things. I'm going to point these out to you now, and they're this. You need to know your identity. You need to know your ministry. And you need to know your enemy. Your identity, your ministry, and your enemy. First, you need to know your identity in Christ. If you are a Christian, you have an identity in Christ. And by the way, as, as we get into this, uh, I'll just say right away that Jude loves triple things. Like he gives three things in rapid succession. And the first group of three we're going to see is called, loved, and kept. So three is not a crowd with Jude. He loves triplets. There are three sets today, by the way. And the first is called, loved, and kept. Now he's going to, he's going to celebrate his identity, really. He's going to affirm his identity. It's his new identity. It's our identity as believers, if you're a Christian. And it is quite striking. In fact, before I even focus on called, loved, and kept, I need you to see what he calls himself. Look at verse 1. He begins, Jude. That's his name, or Judas, Greek form of Hebrew name Judah, a common name among Jewish Christians. He's Jude, the servant of Christ Jesus. He is a servant. It's the Greek word doulos, and it's very interesting that it really gets mistranslated in most of our English translations. We don't want to give it the real, the real translation of that word because of the history we have in America about slavery, and so we don't put that word slave in there, but that's what it is. Slave. He is a slave of Christ. You can use different words for servant in the New Testament. Diakonos is one. It's where we get our word deacon. It's a call to live a life of serving others, not yourself. But doulos is a call to become a slave to a master. It is a slave word. Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, is that master. Doulos means you belong to another, that you are a bond slave, that you have no ownership rights over your own life. You've given yourself up over to the will of God. Uh, you're devoted to him in disregard of your own interests. Now that is drastically different to how many professing Christians present themselves. It's all about me and mine. You need to treat me the right way. I'm going to stand up for my rights. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you see many professing Christians being very self-willed and forcing it upon other people. The slave of Christ says, I'm a slave of Jesus. I belong to Christ. What he says goes. It is going to govern my life. Today, if you're a follower of Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian, a servant of Christ, then... Jesus isn't your personal assistant to take care of every wish that you have, every demand that you have. He is your master. He is your owner. You are his possession, his slave. In fact, I got so into this as I was studying this week, I decided that next week on Father's Day, I'm going to just preach on what does it mean to be a slave of Christ. All, the whole sermon will just be on what does it mean to be a slave of Christ. But here Jude says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He was bought from the slave market of sin, and he was saved from his sins. And as MacArthur puts it, he was slaved by grace. Saved from sin and slaved by grace. Romans 6.22 says that we have been freed from sin and then enslaved to God. So we are freed from a tyrannical master of sin and 
and enslaved to a good and gracious and loving and merciful master, the Lord Jesus Christ. A doulos slave in those days was not a high status position in society. To be a Christian in those days was not a high status position in society. And when he starts this way and says, I am the slave of Christ, he is showing humility. The social rank of slave. A Christian in those days was a social zero. But here you see that he is coming with the authority of God. He represented Jesus Christ. He is a slave of Jesus Christ, the one who rules, the one who will return as world ruler. That, that Jude is a part of a larger story. This is not his story. There is a larger story that there, where there is a sovereign. There is a sovereign king, and he is in authority over him. And, and this is the authority that Jude represents. Jude, a, a, a slave of the sovereign king. So you see a, a lot of humility here, but you also see him recognizing the delegated authority of God. To him, we write as a slave of Christ. You also notice as he calls himself the brother of James. James is a prominent leader in the church. It would make good sense that if you're the brother of James, that you would name check James. Jude, most likely, was the youngest of the four brothers of Jesus. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. He's either the third or the fourth. He is the brother of James, so he is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. But you notice, he didn't say, hey everyone, I'm Jesus' brother, you need to listen to me. Because I'm the slave of Christ and the brother of James. Like the rest of his family, he didn't believe in Christ during his earthly ministry. John 7, 5 says not even his brothers believed in him. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was mentally unstable. But the resurrection changed everything. He became a believer after the resurrection. Acts 1 tells us the Lord's brothers were part of the prayer meetings prior to Pentecost. 1 Corinthians 9 says the Lord's brothers were itinerant missionaries. Jude was probably included in that group. He is Christ's half-brother, Jude, who before the cross denied Jesus as Messiah. But after the resurrection here, you see him humbly acknowledging himself as a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ. Fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ. I hope that you can say that about yourself today. That I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. My sins have separated me far from God, and I have no merit on which to stand, and I only throw myself at the mercy of God for salvation. He did not say, I am Jesus' brother. He was happy to be his slave. He grew up in, in, in the same home with Jesus, but did not follow him, did not worship him, and now in humility honors Christ. He knows he was bought with a price. He knows that he was bought with the precious blood of Christ shed in his place at the cross. He knows he is not his own. He is happy to embrace his brother as king. And he is writing to those of like mind, to those who also consider themselves slaves of Christ. And he says three things about them. This is the first triplet that we see. He writes to those who are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ. He writes to those who are called. Interesting, it's the last word in, the, in verse 1 in the Greek text. And loved and kept 
refer to those who have been called. Uh, calling is the big deal here. Your, your calling is central to your identity in Christ. If you would not cave, if you would not give up, as you contend for the faith once for all delivered, you must know your identity in Christ and you must know that you were called. And it doesn't mean invited. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is referring to the effectual calling of God that opens your heart to fully respond to the gospel, freely respond to the gospel. There, there is a call that goes out to everyone. There is a general call, like, like Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But there is the effectual call of God, Romans 8.30, that those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified and glorified. This is the sovereign grace of God effectually bringing people to salvation, giving you a will to respond where you recognize God's precious pursuit of your soul. And you love him for it because he first loved you. He is writing to those who are called, these slaves of Christ who are called and also loved. And you'll notice he says, loved by God the Father. It's the only time in the Bible you see that phrase, loved by God the Father. It's the present reality of God's love in your life, that God loves his children, that if you are a Christian today, you can actually say with grateful confidence, I am loved by my father. He, he loves me. In Revelation 1, is speaking in, in praise to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to our God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those who are loved and kept. The strongest word here would be kept. It, the way you translate it is either guarded either by Jesus or for Jesus. The best translation is uh, guarded for Jesus. The ESV gets it right. Kept for Jesus Christ. Literally, by Jesus Christ. He's kept by Jesus for Jesus, by Jesus. It's the idea that he himself is guarding you. He is guarding you for himself. You are, you are kept by Jesus. You are kept secure in a hostile world, and he is keeping you for himself. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you can say, God didn't just begin my Christian life. He continues it. He is protecting me through it. He will take me to the end. Some people see a, a, a parallel here with the servant songs in Isaiah where, Isaiah, where Israel is said to be called and loved and guarded. The idea here is that people of God are secure. And you'll discover as you go through Jude with me that, that kept is a theme. You see kept in verse 1. You see it twice in verse 6. You see it in verse 13 and verse 21. Kept is a big theme in Jude. Jesus keeps his people. You're kept by Christ. Now, verse 2 gives a blessing or a short prayer. So those who are slaves of Christ, those who are called, beloved, and kept, the prayer then is, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. These are, are listing blessings of salvation. Because where the grace of God saves you, there is mercy and peace and love in abundance. And you you receive these things, they are, they are multiplied to you. In contrast to the opponents that will, be, that will be pointed out here who do not have this and who are not secure in their identity. 
mercy. That word mercy in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Septuagint is 600 times, found 600 times, 75 times in the New Testament. This is the idea where God seeks a relationship with those who have no right to have a relationship with him. That God pours out his mercy, alleviates the misery that sin brings, all because of his sovereign good pleasure. Not because you had a whole litany of things on your resume that said that you were deserving. On, on the contrary, your sins fully separated you from God, and God in compassion and loving kindness, and his, his in, in the Hebrew it's hesed, his loving kindness, his gracious, undeserved, unmerited mercy toward you, makes you, as Romans 9.23 says, an object of mercy. Mercy bookends Jude. That You have it in verse 2, you have it in verse 21. The ultimate, the ultimate hope of anyone in the believing community is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings us to eternal life and will bring us to final salvation. The coming of Christ to usher his true followers into his eternal rule. Mercy and then peace. The peace of God. 99 times in the New Testament you see the word peace. It's the equivalent to the Old Testament shalom, which is that deep abiding sense of well-being because God loves you and he is in control and he has everything in control. The deep sense of well-being. God is with you and he has everything in control. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we've been justified by faith. Philippians 4 says, don't worry about anything. In everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Mercy, peace, and then love. God's character is summed up in love. John says, God is love. God always desires and seeks what is loving. Every one of his acts built upon his character is loving. His wrath is loving. His judgment is loving. His salvation is loving. His creation is loving. His creating is loving. His ruling is loving. Everything he does is love, and he keeps his own by himself, for himself, in love. And Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You are secure in Christ. If you would not cave, if you would contend for the faith, you must know your identity. You are a slave of Christ. You are accepted, called, beloved, kept. And Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name. You gave them to me. And, and while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I guarded them. And he says, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. That is the hope of the believer. That is the merciful hope, the grateful hope of the believer. Peter says, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time you got to check your identification. You can't go anywhere in the world without bringing identification. They won't let you in. you got to bring your passport. you got to bring something with a picture on it. you got to have information about yourself. You go almost anywhere, and they're going to say, 
you know, you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Show me your, your license. And you know, you know what, what's funny is when they look at you and they look at your picture and you're like, they keep looking at you and you're getting a little insecure because you're like, okay, I'm using the same picture for 20 years, right? You got to have some ID. You got to have some, you got to have your address on there. You have your name on there. You have your picture on there so they know it's you. You need to know your ID as a Christian. You need to check your ID. Make sure it matches what you're saying and what you're doing. You need to know your identity. You have been called effectively by God. This is why I love question number one in the Heidelberg Confession of Faith. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. You need to know your identity in Christ if you would contend and not give up. And not give up. You also need to know your ministry. And your ministry is to contend earnestly. Now, believers are to engage in all sorts of ministry. The ministry of prayer and supplication and proclaiming the gospel and holding our tongue and not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think and a ministry of forgiveness and forbearance and, and listening to one another, helping each other, bearing one another's burdens, a uh, ministry of mercy, patience, having the same care for one another. So I want you to know, I don't want you to go away today saying, well, contending is the only thing. No, contending is not the only thing. It is one of the big things. And it encompasses a lot of things. Your identity in Christ drives your ministry for Christ. Contending for the faith is the major issue of Jude. So as he dives into the body of the letter in verse 3, he begins this way, Beloved, very dear ones. It's like 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives because you had become very dear to us. Love one another so much, beloved. He says, I was very eager. I I was going to work hard at this to write to you about our common salvation. What every believer shares with every other believer. The shared deliverance, the shared preservation, the shared hope. But he says, I found it necessary to write So he's changing course now. He's compelled out of necessity because he realizes something urgent. And he says, I wanted to write to you about our salvation, but I needed to write appealing to you. I'm going to urge you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to beseech you. That's a word that is used of speeches that rulers and leaders and soldiers who urged other on would say. This is the pep talk. This is brave heart. Fight for your women and children. This is commanders sending hesitant soldiers and sailors uh, sailors courageously into battle. I am going to appeal to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend. The Greek word is where we get our word agonize. Agony. It's a military and an athletic word. It means to fight or struggle with intense effort. Defend what has been delivered. The faith. You're going to contend for the faith. 
what is that? Is that some nebulous thing out there? Just the faith? It is very specific. It is the faith once for all delivered. It is a body of truth that was fought for. It's the whole body of revealed salvation truth contained in Scripture. It is once for all delivered. It's been handed down. It's, it's, it's been authorized by God. This is God's revelation. Delivered once as an aggregate body of the canon of Scripture over many, many years. And as it comes all together, where you don't add to it, you don't subtract from it, because Scripture is complete and sufficient and finished, the gospel is fixed, the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. You hold to sound doctrine, you discern truth from error. You defend the true faith in the face of people who have slipped in among the church, but they were against what the word of God says. It is quite the serious battle. It is a serious struggle. And the prize is the faith to be protected, the most holy faith, as verse 20 says. And no new revelation can change it. No research that's done is going to pop up and say, well, what we thought was true is not true anymore. What they had received and had passed on as the fixed tradition under the authority of God, it's the Bible, it's the gospel, it's to be defended, it's to be contended for, you're to fight for a purposeful cause where you struggle and exert great effort and exertion. As Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is not an individual task. This is a church project. This is something that believers do together. Paul says we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. He says this to the Thessalonians. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In 1999, there was a movie, Fight Club, that came out. And Fight Club was all about a, a group of frustrated, angry, aimless, unfulfilled men engaging in senseless violence for nothing. We are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. A purposeful fight club of the redeemed where you say salvation is not in jeopardy. But counterfeit gospels are misleading. And there's this urgent imperative to wage war against lies and to fight strenuously for truth like a soldier entrusted with the task of protecting treasure. Why Paul told Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit that is entrusted to you, the good treasure. Guard through the Holy Spirit, that treasure that has been entrusted. And what is interesting as we move into verse 4 is that they are not being called to contend for the faith with a bunch of people that left the gathering of the believers. They are not contending for the faith against those who are not part of the community. These were people among them, and they were like weeds among the wheat. They were present in the midst of the church, 
and their words and their deeds presented an alternative version of Christianity that was false. And their entrance had been secret. It looked as if they were true believers, but they did unacceptable things. And Jude unmasks them. This is what Jude is doing. He is unmasking those that are amongst the church. If you would contend, not cave, not give up, you need to know your identity in Christ, but also your ministry of contending, but you also need to know your enemy. Condemned creepers, I'm going to call them, verse 4. Put your eyes on verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've slipped in alongside of secretly. That is a very sinister and secretive word. And they are, and here's three things about them. They're deceivers, they're distorters, and they're deniers. They're first deceivers. They have crept in unnoticed. They have infiltrated the church. They've pretended to be true. They look real, but they have evil intent, and they lead people astray because they're Satan's counterfeits. They're being used by Satan to do his will. And so Jude says, long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. They were marked out beforehand. It was written down previously in God's book of judgment, the continuing authority of the word of God, and, and this condemnation, this wrath, this judgment is real. And they're distorters. They're trying to change grace into licentiousness. They're ungodly people. That means they lack a love for Christ. They lack a love for the church of Christ. They lack a love for the word of God. And they pervert, literally they attempt to change the grace of our God into sensuality, into unbridled living. They are underhandedly switching truth for lies um, under the noses of those who should have known better. But maybe they didn't have, as Hebrews 5 puts it, their senses trained to discern between good and evil. And so there's people in the fellowship that are living ungodly lives and kind of leading other people into it and then teaching things that are not biblically accurate because it goes along with their ungodly life. They're distorters, and they're also deniers. This is the strongest indictment. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. He uses two Greek words for Lord here. One that means sovereign Lord over all, and one that means honorable Lord, the perfect God over all. He is speaking of our only sovereign Lord. By the way, those days, a very politically explosive title seeing that Caesar was known by those titles. Severe torture would have been given to those who would not confess Caesar as Lord. You were putting your life on the line to say that you were a slave of Christ your Lord. And for Jude to say, he is our only master and Lord. The three charges against these Godless are that first they are godless. It signifies that they had a moral outrage against God. And not necessarily disbelief, just that they were morally rebelling against God because what they wanted to do didn't fit what the Bible says. And, and you know how it goes. Often immorality and bad theology go together. Not always, but often. 
and they are licentious. They indulge in wickedness, specifically, and more, uh, most, most uh, common was sexual immorality. As Bonhoeffer put it, this is people who live by cheap grace. Grace without repentance that would give license to sin more than before. And they're Christless. You know, whoever loves Christ obeys Christ. But by their behavior, they deny Christ. The, the master of the slave is Christ. He is the Lord to be obeyed. It doesn't matter what you say if you're not going to live it. To confess that Jesus was your only Lord was to make a statement of independence from Caesar as well as submission to Christ. This is you today saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. Let the chips fall where they may. I belong to Christ. I will reject antichrist ideas wherever they appear. In Acts, we read of people that had gone out from the fellowship and troubled people with words that unsettled their minds. They left. But in Galatians, you read of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul tells the Ephesians, don't be children any longer tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Peter says, and, and you'll notice as we go through Jude, you'll, you'll notice that 2 Peter and Jude have a lot of common elements. 2 Peter 2 says false prophets arose among the people. Speaking of the Old Testament times. And just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. This is happening left and right amongst professing Christians today. We have to guard our hearts and be repentant. And you have to ask the question about your own life. What kind of fruit is being seen? What kind of proof can anyone see of a real believer? I told you before that we have some fig trees on our property at home. And there's one in particular in the front yard. And last year it was giving some figs. And then I noticed that from about 20 feet away... There, had, there was a vine that had crept and had gone from one tree to the other till it got to the fig, and I noticed that it was wrapped around tightly around every branch, and it had beautiful purple flowers. And I asked someone about it and said, that is poisonous. That is a creeping, predatory, invasive, aggressive vine, and you have to remove it. Got the hedge clippers out and got it out of there, pulled it down. It was wrapping around the other plants, and it takes them over parasitically. You have to rebuke and remove whatever is wrong in your life or in your beliefs. And you need to not cuddle or cultivate false ideas. That's what we do a lot of times. We, we want to cuddle. Well, let's put those in. Those are beautiful. Let's put those in a vase. No, throw them away. And don't cultivate it. The called contend against creepers. People who behave without moral principle or a sense of responsibility, especially in sexual matters. Amongst Christians, sin is often in the camp. But we have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to deceive and distort and deny fellow believers ganging up against other believers they don't like. 
You try to get believers to cave into social pressure to align with certain views or sins or, or beliefs, whatever will fit what their flesh wants. And as Paul told the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If there would be any correcting being done, besides you correcting your own heart, you would do so lovingly and kindly and cautiously and carefully. I think about Titus 1.9. I mean, I read what an elder is supposed to do. The first two parts are like, yeah, all day long. The third part, a lot of us run from it. It's hold fast to the trustworthy word and, and teach it and refute those who contradict. People who contradict the trustworthy word of God that you're following and you're preaching. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but there might be some among us that are peddling false ideas. And if you want to read Revelation 9 later on today, this will give you some, some assurance. Satan and all the demonic forces are under the authority of the sovereign God. And this world and all of humanity is, will be judged by the sovereign God. And mankind's heart is wicked and blinded and often hardened towards the sovereign God. But our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ. God makes it very simple for us. We should be singing and saying and living all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. He makes it really clear that only one master can be served. Romans 14 tells us, to your own master you will stand or fall. The Lord is able to make you stand. That we are, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are to live for him who died in our place. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we were bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies. The saving confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. You can't proclaim Christ as Lord apart from being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the authority of the universe. Paul said, I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. In those days, a slave would even write the name of his master on his hand to indicate his slavehood. But there are some who do not want to hear about the lordship of Christ because it's too much for them. There are professing believers who say, you just need to preach generic hope. I had someone tell me that this week. You just preach hope. I said, what? Hope in, in Christ who saves us from the wrath to come? I will preach that hope every day. Hope in Jesus. Not some generic hope or love or peace. Even people professing faith in Christ, lordship is just too forceful for them. It's just too much for them. Lordship is essential. You cannot say, I want Jesus as my savior, but I don't want to make him my Lord. You're not a Christian if that's the case. You cannot have Christ in your life without having him be your Lord. You have acknowledged, I'm a slave of Christ. My life belongs to him. He's your Lord, which means you have to do what he says. In his strength, he provides the strength for you to do it. Jude loves Jesus, so I love Jude. If you love Jesus, I love you too. If you don't love Jesus, I love you, and I want you to know Jesus. But he's the only master and Lord. Measure everything in your life by the master's good pleasure. Am I aligned with him? Now, Jude wanted to write about beautiful salvation, and guess what? He, he's he's going to do that. He did that. 
he contrasts it with ungodly twisters of truth. That's the backdrop upon which the diamond of the gospel can be seen. Telling believers, you have a single-minded focus in what really matters. If you would not cave, if you would not give up, you need to be laser-focused on your identity in Christ, that you are a slave of Christ, that you are called and beloved, that you are kept by Jesus Christ. You need to know your ministry. You need to know that you're not on the sidelines, that you are in the fight, and you are to contend for the faith and defend what has been previously decisively delivered. And you must know your enemy. You must be able to recognize deceivers who creep in unnoticed and disorders who pervert grace and deniers who deny Christ. That you, If you would contend, if you would not cave, then you need, with mercy in your heart, for every suffering sinner, don't put up with falsehood. You cannot serve two masters. The called contend for Christ. Don't just hold a sound doctrine. Refute those who contradict. Those who sneak in. They're going to try to enslave the unsuspecting in sinful living and the twisting of truth. Just trust God, honor his word, and protect his church. And fight with all your might against lies. Hold out the truth and cast down lies. Never give up. Back to... October 1, 75. I was 13 years old then. October 1st, 1975. Third epic fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Before the final round, before the 15th round, both men were in their corners. And they're both absolutely worn out. And Frazier's manager looks at Frazier and says, I am not going to let the fight continue. And he throws in the towel. Ali wins. He wins by a TKO, technical knockout, after Frazier's manager asked the referee to stop the fight following the end of the 14th round. The ironic thing is, there's Ali sitting across the ring in the other corner, and he tells his trainer, if Frazier comes out to fight, I won't continue. All Frazier had to do to win the fight was stay in the fight. When Jude says, stay, contend, contend earnestly for the faith, in order to contend earnestly, you have to stay in the fight. Ali said later, that was the closest he had ever come to dying. At the end of the 14th round, he told his trainer, cut my gloves off, I'm done. His trainer ignores him. Ali later told his biographer, Thomas Hauser, Frazier quit just before I did. Contend, don't cave. Lord God, if we are in the faith, we are in the fight. We are not spectators. We are full participants. Lord, give us strength and happiness to be a slave of you, our kind and merciful master. Give us strength to contend and keep contending for the faith. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.